Now, I don't know if you know, in November, some fascinating statistics came out that were results of the census that many of us did last year. And one of the interesting things that came out in November was the results about the religious makeup of the life in England and Wales. And for the first time in history, the number of people in England and Wales who said they were Christians dropped below half. First time in all of our records. 46.2% of people in England and Wales now say they are Christian. Still the biggest group, but it is significant that it dropped below 50%. Less people than ever are saying they're Christians. In a time where globally Christianity is growing significantly, there's approximately 2.5 billion people worldwide who'd say they're Christian. And on the current rates, by 2050, that'll be 3.3 billion people. But what's interesting is if you look across the UK, 46.2 said they're Christian, 37.2%, a massive growth, said they had no religion. And then 10.7% were part of another religion. So there's something specific about countries like ours. But if you zoom in to Birmingham, that's even more different. To the country as a whole, 46.2% say they're Christians. In Birmingham, that's 34%. And those who say they have no religion in the country as a whole, that's 37%, just over. In Birmingham, it's 24%. And for those in Birmingham who say they have another religion, that's, that is 35.8%, the single biggest group. So in other words, Birmingham is less Christian than the whole country and more religious than the whole country. Interesting. Now, there's all sorts of complex reasons, I think, for why that might be the case. And ask any expert, they'll give you lots of reasons. Many of them are just demographic to do with birth rates and things like that. Some of them are to do with confidence that now it's perhaps more acceptable to say you have no religion. Whereas 10 years ago, people might have put Christian just because they were baptized somewhere in their past. But what is undeniably true in the UK, there are less people who are saying that they are Christians. And when it comes to the reasons why people struggle with their faith, I think there are many reasons, but two big ones are in the passage that we have had read to us. About how we navigate times of trial and difficulty and hardship, and how we navigate the temptations that come to us in life. And we're going to be focusing on those two things briefly this morning. And we're going to discover that Kate Bush might have been right. And we're also going to discover why you shouldn't be like a European hotel. So listen in. And we're briefly going to look at the two different approaches that people take to trials and temptations, whether Christian or not, whether religious or not, whether you'd say you have no religion, another religion or Christian. Because broadly speaking, there are different approaches to both trials and temptations. And into all of them, the Jesus way is radically different, as we will see spelled out by James. And as we jump into this, it's worth reminding us, why should we listen to James? You may be here exploring faith, looking at Christianity. And why should we pay any attention to what a guy called James 2,000 years ago wrote? And if you didn't listen last week, join in last week. Look back on YouTube at the talk last week that Sarah gave. Brilliant talk setting this series up. 
And she focused on the opening verse. Here it is on the screen. And this is why we should pay attention to what James says. He introduces himself, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Now, I want to draw your attention to something. I have a brother. If I grew up thinking I was pretty special, my brother would take some convincing. If I grew up claiming to be the Messiah, my brother would take an extraordinary amount of convincing. We all know if we've lived with people, we see the good things and the not so good things. Which is why, by the way, when we get married, it is a commitment to somebody that we don't know because we don't know what they'll become. But here you've got James. Look at the word that he describes. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine my brother... Or flip it the other way around. Imagine me saying to my brother, I'm his servant. You would say there's something dysfunctional in that family. But here you've got James, the bishop of the main church of the day, saying, I'm a servant of my brother. Friends, we should listen to James because he saw something up front that he knew was different about Jesus. This is not just claims from other people who kind of spin a yarn. He saw him up front and knew that he was different. Friends, we should listen to what James has to say about this Lord Jesus Christ. So, firstly, what do we do in life when we go through times of trial? You don't need me to tell you these are difficult days for many of us. This is what The Economist magazine said, looking ahead to this year, the end of last year. This is what they said. In retrospect, the pandemic marked the end of a period of relative stability and predictability. Today's world is much more unstable. Unpredictability is the new normal. There is no getting away from it. So not only globally, but in our lives, we know these are challenging days, let alone the individual circumstances that we face. So how do we deal with it? Whether you're someone who'd name the name of Christian on your census or some other religious group or no religion at all, what do you do when you go through stuff that is just rough? Well, I think, generally speaking, many religious perspectives, when coming face to face with trials and challenges and difficulties, they are surprising to us. Because many of us kind of adopt the posture that if I just be good, if I do the right thing, if I write, pray the right prayers, live the right way, devote, have the right sort of devotional life, whatever it might be in whatever religious system we may follow, we hope and think that therefore God will do us right and therefore life will be relatively sweet. Of course, ups and downs, but generally God should reward us for what we do. That's the kind of religious approach. Do the right thing, God will make it sorted for us. And so therefore, trials, when they happen to us, seem so unfair. Don't you know what I've done for you, God? Look at that person over there who's not living. I wasn't pointing at anyone in the room. But <laughs> look at that person over there, point up. They've done nothing for you, God, and their life seems so sweet. That's the kind of religious approach. Put your money in, get what you need out. But in contrast to that, to the sort of the, the no religious, the kind of secular way, 
is that trials are things that we should avoid at all costs. And when they come, something is wrong. And so it's either my fault and I end up crumbling because it's somehow my fault that I haven't worked hard enough, haven't been successful, haven't lived the right way. Or it makes me bitter towards other people because it's their fault. Well, what about the Jesus way? Listen to James's words that are stunning and speaking to both of these things. Here's what he said. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, and not lack anything. Do you notice several things? The word whenever you face trials. Not if, whenever. Trials, friends, are normal. They are. Wasn't it beautiful if you're part of Riverside to hear the stories of Olivia and Pierre and Steve just before Christmas? And they're not alone in the life of Riverside for people going through really serious stuff. And hearing the faith in Jesus despite the trial. Beautiful. Whenever you go through trials. Do you notice something else? It's possible, according to James, because of Jesus to see trials differently. Not to be surprised, nor to be crippled, but to somehow embrace it with joy. Wow, you don't need me to tell you that, frankly, seems bonkers. I just want to encourage, by the way, both Olivia, Pierre and Steve, and others in this room and some online who are watching right now going through the most brutal of trials. You may not think you are shining brightly for Jesus, but let me tell you, other people look at you and go, wow, this Jesus is worth it. That's the gift of those who, even though they may feel completely squashed and crushed, just clinging on to Jesus, that is what faith is, friends. But how joy? How on earth can you embrace joy when going through trials? Well, do you notice something? It's because clearly God is not absent in those trials. He's doing something because you know that the testing of faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Even in the trial, God has not walked away. God is at work in you as well as through you. Now, it's important. James isn't saying that God causes those bad things. But in the middle of them, there are beautiful things that God is doing. Even in the darkness, there is beauty, friends. And can I say, in my role, you get to hear some really difficult stories. And many of us know what that looks like to walk that in our lives. But the most beautiful people in life are the ones who cling on to Jesus in the most trying of times. I love this quote from one of my heroes, Charles Spurgeon. A man, very well-known preacher in the Victorian era, struggled with what we would call as chronic depression all his life. This quote is beautiful. I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. If our response to trials is not, how dare you, or is not, I've got to run away from them, how it's so unfair, but is, God, I've got nothing, you've got to do something, that 
makes Jesus look beautiful. You can go to two ways in trials, towards God or away from him. Thank you to those who are suffering in our midst and are doing all you can to cling on to Jesus. You are teaching us so well. But how? How do we do that? Well, James spells it out for us. He goes on. Listen, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts it is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the sea, the wind. That person shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person's double-minded and unstable in all they do. What we need in those trials is wisdom from God. Now, wisdom here isn't intellectual information, which is kind of how we use the word today. They're wise because they know a lot and therefore, you know, clever. Wisdom in Bible terms is learning to live God's way in God's world. Knowing the right way and therefore living accordingly. We might think we're being clever by choosing our way over God's, but that's not wisdom according to the Bible. And what his, James seems quite harsh here. You're double-minded if you don't do that. But what he's really saying is this. In times of trial, we can go with God or not. And it might sometimes seem very attractive and not to go with God. Not to go with God, but actually that's not wisdom. And in the long run, you'll see why. What he's saying is don't be like this hotel that's on the screen. I wonder, any guesses? Well, no, I haven't got time to guess. What's interesting about this hotel? You can chat at home if you want to. Anyone notice that of interest? Put your hands up if you do now. I'm not going to ask you. But What's interesting about this hell, hotel, hell, not hotel, not hell, is that it's on the border of France and Switzerland. So on step 13 on their staircase, you go from being in France to Switzerland. There are rooms where you can stay and you can sleep in France and go to toilet in Switzerland in the same room. And what James is simply saying is don't be like this hotel living in two places at once. I'll go God's way when it seems good for me, when I like it and it seems to make sense, but I won't when it doesn't. Don't be like this hotel. I'm sure it's a lovely hotel, by the way, if you're ever watching. Beautiful, I'm sure. But you get what I mean. Double-minded, that's what he means. Split thinking. Be like an athlete, in other words. Imagine years ago, a few years back, we had the marathon coming at the end of our road, and we were there just kind of cheering other people on. And there was this guy who stopped on the curb, exhausted. He'd hit the wall. And I remember chatting to him. I've never met him before. May well never meet him again. I just said, mate, keep going. You're not that far away. Come on, you can do it. Come on, everyone else is going. Keep going. And so he gradually picked himself up, stumbled, and then kept going. All it needed was somebody else to say, come on, the end's not far away. Keep going. If you put in all that training, and then when the hardship comes, whereas James is simply saying, keep going, the end is worth it, as we'll see. But there's one particular trial for these guys, which links in for our day to day, and their trial, some of their trials were around money. Money. And in a time where cost of living is very tricky and prices go up and up and up, how do we navigate those sort of trials? Well, verses 9 to 11 make it clear. I haven't got time to read it, but what's really obvious is that James says that Jesus flips how we see money. Money is not a reward for good behavior, well done, successful people. It's not the God that's worth living for. In fact, if you've got no money, well done for your high position. And if you have money, 
You're blessed because of your low position. Wow, humiliated, he says. And it's easy for us to think, yeah, but they don't know the financial pressures I'm under. But we forget, in those days, no welfare state. You had nothing, you had nothing, and nobody to help you. And James says, Jesus enables you to see that differently. Because in your low position, you therefore have to reach out to the one who has got your life in his hands. Whereas when you've got wealth, you can rely on your pension plan or your insurance policies or whatever it is. And so you kind of hedge your bets a bit. But it can also be helped by the community you're in. And one of the things we're really thrilled about here at Riverside is the launch of Riverside Pantry that is specifically to therefore help those within our community who are going through really challenging times financially and give them both the dignity and the opportunity to shop in a way that really helps them. Please pray for it. And over the prayer and fasting days, we're going to pray a bit more for it as well. For those who have more, that fades away, says James. Can't be relied upon. Which is, by the way, why... It's what it's so important to be part of a community. And can I just say as a little aside here, if you're part of Riverside and you say Riverside is your church, either here in the room or you've joining us at home, whether in Birmingham or beyond, and you'd say actually Riverside has become your church. But you know that you're not regularly kind of giving to the life of Riverside in financially. We'd love to, you to consider to do that as part of your commitment of what it means to be part of the family, to therefore help each other as we try to live for Jesus. So why live like this in trials? Well, the story's not finished, that's why. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised those to love him. The finishing line is worth it, friends. And in the middle of the darkest trials, that is the thing that keeps you going. In the words of Kate Bush... Don't give up. Trials. But very briefly, as we come to a close, what do we do with our temptations then? Now, again, a kind of religious approach to battling with temptations is either that temptation is wrong in itself, that if only knew the things that I was tempted with, or a way of demonstrating how righteous and impressive we are because we haven't got the same temptations as them. How dare they? They're bad. I'm all right if I can overcome them. And a more kind of secular people who might put, I'm not part of any religious system. In our day, I wonder if one of the approaches to temptation is that by denying yourself, you're denying yourself. There's almost an act of self-hatred. Listen to some quotes from some self-help websites. Goop said this. When we limit or even deny our pleasure, we are essentially limiting and denying life. Huffington Post. Self-denial is the choice of denying yourself the joy you were born to experience. So I wonder if many people in our day, actually, I've got this thing I'm tempted by, by not having it, by not embracing it, I'm denying myself. Well, again, Jesus is very different to both of these. Listen, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God's tempting me. For God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person's tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. 
The Jesus way. Do you notice? Temptation is normal, friends. All of us in this room are tempted in some way by some things. We just are. Secondly, God is not tempting you. So denying yourself is not bad. In fact, denying yourself often is good. Think of an athlete not having that next McDonald's so that they can do the marathon. We say that's good. And so friends in our culture, self-denial can be seen as denying ourselves in a bad way, unhealthy, self-loathing way. But actually the Jesus way is different. So often denying ourselves is good discipline, helping ourselves to become the people that God wants us to be. And thirdly, giving in to that temptation is serious. Do you read those words? Getting dragged away. And we all know what that's like. When there's stuff that we're tempted by and we embrace whatever that looks like, actually God gets smaller. So this year, friends, what temptations might you battle? And as I close, why all of this is so important? What is so key about this? Well, James ends it in the following ways. Verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Friends, the finishing line is worth it. There is one who shattered death and rose up again. And like seeing a first apple on a tree, we know there's more coming. And in the same way, because Jesus died and rose again, so too for those who cling on to him, death is not the great enemy. Therefore, the finishing line, friends, is worth holding on for, is worth clinging on in the trials to him, the one that can get you through. And it's worth in those temptations saying the victory line, the crown I will get, the holy kind of promise up ahead is worth it, friends. And we need each other to say, come on, let's keep going. As distinct followers of Jesus, Let's keep going because he is worth it. The crown ahead is worth it.